Our study of great hymn writers continues this morning as we travel across the pond to England to revisit a man we now refer to as the father of modern Protestant hymns. Isaac Watts was born as the first of nine children on July 17, 1674 in Southampton, England. He was brought up in the home of a committed religious nonconformist. His father, Isaac Watts Sr., had been incarcerated twice. Why? For his non-denominational views, which went against the Church of England. It became apparent to all around him at a very early age that young Isaac was truly gifted of God. He had a love for language and a propensity for rhyme. He could rhyme literally every word he spoke all day long from a young age. Once he had to explain why he had his eyes open during prayer as a young boy. And he said, a little mouse for want of stairs ran up a rope to say its prayers. Well, receiving corporal punishment for this, he cried, oh, father, father, pity take, and I will no more verses make. Watts was as brilliant as he was as a child. He was refused by Oxford and Cambridge for his uh, nonconformity because he didn't belong to the Church of England. And he went to the dissenting academy at Stoke Newington in 1690. And much of his life later centered around that village, which is now part of inner London. He was saved at the age of 15. And by the age of 16, he had mastered Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and French. After graduating at the age of 20, he returned to the large non-denominational independent chapel in London, where his father served as a deacon. There were no hymns as we know them today. Only quaint and often very odd versions of psalms were sung. They would take scripture, they would take psalms exactly as they were and, and uh, put some chants and, and melodies to them and sing them. And young Isaac Watts often felt when these old psalms were sung as if a rusty saw, we're told, was being sharpened close to his ear. One Sunday afternoon, he complained bitterly to his father, who was the deacon there at the chapel, of their want of harmony and good taste. He just didn't care for the music there. And he kept complaining and complaining. So his father said, son, you don't like something in the church? Well, we'll find a new church. No. No, he said, son, you don't like it? Then give us something better, young man. That was his father's sharp reply. And the young man did. He would take the same psalm, paraphrase it, and expand poetically upon it. And that same evening, the service in the chapel was closed with a new hymn by Isaac Watts. O God, our help in ages past. It became a sacred classic straight from Psalm 90. It later would be sung at the funeral of the former British Prime Minister Winston Churchill in St. Paul's Cathedral in 1965. Let's open with it this morning. Oh God, our help in ages past.
hope for years to come. Our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. Under the shadow of thy throne, still may we dwell secure. Sufficient is thine arm alone, and our defense is sure. Before the hills in order stood, or earth received her frame. From everlasting thou art God, to endless years the same. A thousand ages in thy sight are like an evening gone. Short as the watch that ends the night before the rising sun. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. shall last and our eternal home from the top oh god our help in ages past our hope for years to come our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home under the shadow Sufficient is thine arm alone, and our defense is sure before the hills, before the hills in order stood, or earth received her frame. From everlasting thou art God, to endless years the same. A thousand ages in thy sight are like an evening gone. Short as the watch that ends the night before the rising sun. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. shall last and our eternal home sing the last line and our eternal home stretch it out and our And from that eventful Sunday evening, Watts poured forth a continuous stream of sacred song, bringing a fresh new hymn to the chapel each Sunday until almost a hymnal had been produced. He wrote the majority of his hymns between the age of 20 and 22. So young people, don't ever think you're too young for God to use in a big way. Over 700 hymns including Am I a Soldier of the Cross, 
I sing the mighty power of God and the Christmas classic joy to the world. The Lord is come. His great desire was to be of help to the worshiper in drawing near to God. He tried to express the breathings and aspirations of the Christian soul, its love, its fears, its hopes, its faith, its wonder, its sorrow, and its joy, and to lead it to sing the praises of God with a new understanding. He said, I make no pretense to be a poet, but to the lamb that once was slain and now lives, I have addressed many a song to be sung by the penitent and believing heart. What an illustration we have in this hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, some have thought this to be his finest hymn. Sing it with us this morning. survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died. My richest gain, my richest gain, I count but loss and pour content on all my pride. Forbid it the vain things, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His love. Play it for us, Jim. from his head see from his head his hands his feet sorrow and love for me go down hear such love and sorrow me born forms composed so rich Oh, my life, my own. 
sing love so amazing love so amazing so deep demands my soul demands my soul my life my own. demands my soul demands my soul stretch now now my life my Watts preached his first sermon at age 24. In the next three years, he preached frequently, and we're told in 1702, he was ordained as pastor of that independent congregation in London. His hymns were often used with his sermons to illustrate great scriptural truths. And I wish I could tell you that in his day, those hymns were well celebrated. We now consider them to be church standards and I wish they were globally well-received. They weren't. Watts' hymns split many a church in his day. He was greatly criticized by both the Roman Catholics and the nonconformists who called his hymns uninspired because they were not direct quotations from Scripture. His reply to this was, if we can pray to God in sentences that we have made up ourselves, then surely we can sing to God in sentences that we have made up ourselves. Regardless, many church leaders railed against Watts and his hymns. Some traveled great distances to go to other churches and encourage congregations not to sing when a Watts hymn was offered up. It didn't stop him. Despite his many enemies, he continued pastoring, preaching, and using his hymns for 46 years. Here's one of our favorites. We sang it this morning. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die. It was played at an altar call many years later in 30th Street Methodist Church in New York City in the fall of 1850 when young, one young lady at the age of 30 was so moved she gave her life to Christ that night. Her name was Fanny J. Crosby. She had been to the altar twice before but had not received the peace she sought. And while at the altar, the congregation was singing, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. And according to her own testimony and in her own words, she said, It seemed to me that the light must indeed come then or never. So I arose and went to the altar alone. After a prayer was offered, they began to sing the grand old consecration hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die. And when they reached the third line of the fourth stanza, Here, Lord, I give myself away. My very soul was flooded with celestial light. I sprang to my feet shouting, Hallelujah. And then for the first time, I realized that I had been trying to hold the world in one hand and the Lord in another. Sing with us this morning. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light.
did my sovereign would he devote that sacred head for such a world as I? At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing did He grace unknown and love beyond degree. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. Have you been there? It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty Maker died for man the creature's sin at the cross at the cross where i first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away rolled away it was there by faith i received my sight and now i am happy all the day but drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. Dear Lord, I give myself away. Is all that I can do at the cross, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden. was there by faith I received my sight and now I am happy all the day Sing it at the cross at the cross at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away it was there by faith I received my sight and now I am the last line and now I am happy all the day and now I am happy and now I am happy all the day
Isaac Watts never married, never had children. After 46 faithful years of pastoral service, Isaac Watts died trusting alone in the merits, righteousness, and blood of Christ, of which he had so often written. One sentence from his deathbed was, I remember an aged minister say that the most learned and knowing Christians, when they come to die, have only the same plain promises of the gospel for their support as the common and unlearned people of God. And so I find it. They are the plain, simple promises which don't require labor or pains to understand. For I can do nothing now but look into my Bible for some promise to support me and live upon that. His earthly course ended peacefully on November 25th, 1748, at the age of 75. And his ransomed spirit went to the land of which he had written so many times. Beautiful, beautiful Zion, the beautiful city of God. We carry on singing those timeless sacred hymns. We carry on marching upward to Zion, where we will be united with our brother Isaac Watts and sing his hymns anew face to face with our Savior. Close with us this morning with this hymn. We're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. Oh, 
through Emmanuel. What a day that will be. Fairer worlds on high to fairer worlds on high. Are you ready? Here we go. We're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, the beautiful sea of Sing it again. We're marching. We're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, the beautiful sea of God. Last line. The beautiful sea of God. The beautiful city. The beautiful sea of Good morning. A great thanks to Randy and the worship team. Amen. My goodness. It's amazing what you learn from these stories. Isaac Watts, along with Charles Wesley, have always been two of my absolute favorite songwriters of the traditional hymns. Um, as well as Fanny Crosby, and to hear how he affected her, it's a tough act to follow. It really is. What a blessing. Gosh, what a reality check about what's really important in this world. So easy to criticize so hard just to trust God and, and walk with him daily. God bless Isaac Watts. Got to put him on my list of people I want to sit down with and pick their brain in heaven. So, what a blessing. 
I want to steal a phrase from one of our dear old saints who used to come and preach Roland Hill to what, the ripe old age of 95? Uh, amazing man. Um, he said, from time to time it's okay to use our sanctified imaginations. And we're going to do that this morning. I have a couple of stories to tell you before we, we pray and we um, read the text, which will give a clue to the message this morning. And the first story is about a woman named Alice. I do apologize if any of our guests is named Alice. Tried to think of names that weren't members of our church. So Alice was a wife and mother who considered herself a good Christian woman, who attended church with her family. However, she didn't think she was as faithful as her three close friends, also wives and mothers. They were always praying and reading their Bibles and talking about the Lord. Alice thought little sins just weren't so bad. As far as she was concerned, nobody's perfect. She did envy her friends joy and peace, especially after Sunday sermons. She, on the other hand, was always troubled and unsettled and was eager to leave the church and start to enjoy the rest of her day. Her best friend Lucy noticed that Alice started to avoid coming to church from time to time. Alice used to get so angry at Lucy. Lucy kept asking Alice if she thought she was really saved and confident that she was going to heaven. Lucy did this because she was such a dear friend and she was so concerned about Alice. But now Alice knew that this day was going to be a really good day because it was just lunch with her friends and all their kids were in school. Alice arrived at Lucy's house for lunch. She realized, as usual, she was the last one to arrive. As she was getting out of her car, though, there was a strange, almost eerie noise and a brief but powerful gust of wind. As Alice walked toward the house, she could hear in the background sirens and other strange noises. Lucy's teapot was whistling in the kitchen as Alice approached the front door, which was opened and the screen door unlocked. So Alice went in but found no one there. So she proceeded to the backyard, to the patio. Again, no one was there. So she went back into the house and into the kitchen and turned off the teapot. She then turned around and looked at the kitchen table. She saw cups of coffee still hot and plates of half-eaten cookies. Then she froze when her eyes looked downward and she saw Lucy's favorite dress on the floor along with her shoes. 
And her two friends had piles of clothes on the floor as well, but no one in sight. What could have happened to them? Then Alice remembered Lucy's baby, so she raced upstairs and found an empty crib. Then it hit her. She remembered the pastor's sermon last Sunday was about the rapture. Oh, how she wanted to go forward that day and give her life to Jesus Christ. But then she stopped because, well, it was just too embarrassing. She now realized that the rapture had just taken place. So she wept with screams of horror. I have been left behind. Story number two. Hank was a typical fun-loving single male in his late 30s who had so far successfully evaded marriage. Hank and his best friend George had been flying together since their military days, and now they both flew for the same commercial airline. Hank really treasured George's friendship. Hank's only problem with George was that he was such a killjoy when it came to their layovers together because Hank loved to wine and dine the ladies. You see, George was one of those born-again Christians. Yep, George was a one-woman man and faithful to his wife and his Savior. Why, George even dragged Hank to church when Hank couldn't find anything else to do. The other problem Hank had with George is every time they flew together, all George wanted to talk about was Jesus. However, this flight was going to be very different. As Hank was returning to the cockpit after a lengthy visit flirting with the female flight attendants at the back of the plane, he noticed that the nose of the jet was beginning to drop and they were losing altitude. As he rushed quickly back to the cockpit, Hank couldn't help but notice the disturbance between several groups of passengers. But now his major concern was the aircraft. And as he opened the cockpit door, he got the shock of his life. Where George had just been seated flying the jet when Hank left earlier, now George was gone. Only his clothes remained on the seat. Hank quickly jumped into the co-pilot seat and took control of the jet. Just then, one of the flight attendants burst into the cockpit, yelled at Hank, saying, We've just lost 22 people out of the 160 passengers, and the other passengers said they just disappeared. It was then that Hank remembered what George said last week, that if Hank ever decided to receive Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, that they would have to stop flying together for the sake of the passengers because they would both be raptured 
and their aircraft would crash. Now, sadly, it dawned on Hank that the rapture did just take place. And Hank had been left behind. Let's just take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today as always in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has cleansed us and forgiven us and given us eternal life. And so, Father, we pray that you would just bless this morning. And it's our hope that you would change and touch lives. And if there's anyone here that has not yet made the decision to accept you, Lord Jesus, as their Lord and Savior. Seek your forgiveness for their sins and gain eternal life that only can come through you. We pray that now. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text this morning is from the first book of Thessalonians, chapter 4, starting in verse 16. Give you a chance to get there. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. If you're like me, I like those better. I can see it better than my own Bible. No worries, young people. But some of us have that problem. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel with the trumpet of God and the dead will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. May the Lord bless the reading of his scripture. Our topic this morning, which you've all figured out, is the rapture. I looked up the definition in a dictionary. It said, the rapture anticipated by fundamental Christians is the meeting of Christ midway in the air upon his return to earth. The uh, encyclopedia was a little fancier. It said, the rapture is a term in Christian eschatology which refers to the being caught up discussed in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 when the dead in Christ and we who remain are caught up in the clouds with our Lord. Our first question this morning is, who will be raptured? All born-again Christians. Not all people who call themselves Christians, but all born-again Christians. And first, it will be those who have died in Christ in ages past. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then all of those who are born again and alive, right now, if it was to happen, every born again Christian in this church were gone. Now, I don't know about you, but that really excites me, okay? I really love that, and I hope, God willing, it happens within my lifetime because I'm not a guy who likes to go to, you know, the fairgrounds or the boardwalk and get on the crazy rides and get that rush. It's just not for me. But I'm telling you, that's one rush I would love to experience. Amen? Amen. So our next question is, when will the rapture take place? This will be a worldwide event. This will take place throughout the entire world at the same time millisecond. You can start to see how this world will be thrown in chaos when the rapture takes place. In the order of events in the word of God, the rapture takes place just prior to the beginning of the Great Tribulation. It is the last event that will take place in the dispensation we are now known in as the Age of Grace. It will be the very last thing. And at the same time as we're caught up in the air, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, will leave this earth. Its presence, as we've known it, will be no more. Men and women will then be void of conscience. They will only know and understand the only thing left to do is every evil under the sun. When will this take place? The scriptures are very clear. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 39, our Lord tells us this. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like in the days of Noah. For as those... In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. This present world as we know it, will never be again. This 
world as we know it now is getting more and more evil. Wickedness and immorality are prevalent and they keep going to a new level every day. You have to be careful when you turn on the TV. You have to guard yourself about what you decide to go to the movies and see. Because it's just like the days of Noah. I can't even imagine being somewhere where the Spirit of God is no longer. Hal Lindsey in his book, The Late Great Planet Earth, published in 1973, was about Christian prophecy and listed so many events that would have to take place before the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I remember this book, and I remember reading it, and it's interesting the contrast between born-again believers and those who don't know Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ, this book will just trouble you to death. I, on the other hand, was so excited about it in anticipation. That was in 1973. I think I, I, I read it in like 75. But it's now amazing that the increase in the famines, the wars, the earthquakes, and all the changes today have taken place. Everything he talked about in, 70, in 73, and there were so many skeptics, so many naysayers, so many people said, this is not going to take happen. This is a bunch of garbage. Well, guess what? It's all happened in that book. And he's written many other books. Look at what's happening in the Middle East as we are here. The turmoil, the chaos, the hatred that is just running amok. I remember a preacher used to say it's like straws in the wind. Before the hurricane hit, you'd start to see things flying through the air. These are those signs. It's coming. And poor Israel, public opinion worldwide is getting worse and worse and worse for that country. It's got to the point where they're only pretty much the Christian circles that are supporting Israel and people in government. The others don't care. Europe's turned their back on them. But once the rapture takes place, Israel's last great friendships will disappear and will be set up where they'll have no choice but to turn to the Antichrist for help. All part of what will take place. Woe to the person who's still here for the Great Tribulation. Now for this knowledge and this understanding, we as believers, how should we then be living? First, I think we should be very fervent with our prayers. For those we know, those we love, our fellow workers at work, our neighbors, 
our acquaintances, we should be in fervent prayer for their salvation. We also should live our lives like never before as ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21 put it well. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Ambassadors, whether you know it or not, you are one. Therefore, we should conduct ourselves as such. But remember, prepare yourselves like you're going to live a long life here. We should keep our jobs, none of this crazy stuff. We should be responsible. We should be the best performers at our work, the best students in school. We are ambassadors. We should conduct ourselves as such, where we give them no reason to mock our God. <clears throat> But at the same time, we should be ready. We should be anticipating the events to come. A question that always seems to come up in our minds and there was a movie recently in the last few years that I believe did such a disservice to the cause of Christ. It was called Left Behind. Because in it, everybody who didn't accept Jesus Christ was just fine. They just had to put it together and get saved. And those who produced the movie totally ignored the scriptures on the same subject. And this is another reason why we should be fervent in our prayers. Because sadly, the answer is no. That those who have heard the gospel, those who have chosen not to accept it, will have no chance during the tribulation. And here's why. From God's own words. found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 through 12. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he, that is the Holy Spirit, is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, the Antichrist, with whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. Just think about that. As evil and powerful as the Antichrist will appear to be, God will extinguish him with just a breath. And bring an end to the appearance of his coming, that is, 
The one who is coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, for those who perish because they did not receive the love of truth so as to be saved. For this reason, and here's the key, folks, for this reason, God will send them a deluding influence so they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. The people who have heard the gospel but have not accepted Jesus Christ, say, well, that's their opinion, but they heard it, they know it. They understand it, who Jesus Christ is according to the Christians. They will not be given the opportunity. God will give them a delusion. They're done. Only Jews and the heathen will have a chance. So young people especially, if you ever saw that movie, forget it. Okay? Any of you who saw that movie and you're thinking, well, if they're gone, well, hey, I know. That's my sign. I'll step up. You won't be able to. It'll be too late. And what everybody, whatever tugs you in this present world, whatever you think out there is so wonderful or is so powerful, turn to Christ. Amen. Turn to him now before it's too late. So whatever pipe dream you're thinking about or whatever picture Hollywood or anybody else has painted that there's this rosy side of life, believe me, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I was as rotten a sinner as you could find. It's all a lie and it's empty and there's nothing of value. My most joyful day as a young man was the day I found Christ. All of that is no darn good. So turn to Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for this morning. We thank you for our beloved brother Isaac Watts, who is such an inspiration, who stood as a young man at the age of 22 against the day entrusted you with his life at a younger age and at 22 changed the world in Christianity as we know it. Lord, we pray that everybody here would decide to come to know you if they don't this morning, to turn their lives over to you and stop believing the lies of Satan because there's nothing out there. All the tough guys when they enter hell will realize what a horrific mistake they made. All the philosophers, all the poets, all the intellectuals, all those who were in false religions of which there's a myriad of, realize the moment they cross over that you're the way, the truth, and the life, Lord Jesus. And no one comes to the Father but through you. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.